One of the things you learn from any serious scholar, as Lewis was a very serious one, is uh, the truth and, and, and the good and the beautiful, they're very precious things, and they're not easy to find. It's an achievement to find them. And the way to preserve them is to look for them. And that would be to follow the great masters who have looked for them. That's an, the easiest single way to do it. Read the great books that are about those subjects. Learn them, teach them to others, and then they will be alive in the human soul. Welcome back. Uh, my name is Larry Arn. This is an online course presented by Hillsdale College on C.S. Lewis. This is the final lecture, and it concerns the third of three chapters in C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man, and that third chapter is itself called The Abolition of Man. And I'm hoping that this uh, lecture is going to be both hilarious and serious. Uh, certainly it's very serious. The things that uh, Lewis forecast in The Abolition of Man are very serious. But he wrote a novel, and some of the things in that are hilarious, and so I thought it'd be better to relieve the seriousness, as he did, with telling you a story or two from the novel. Uh, you can see the, the seriousness of the subject of the abolition of man. Think about that, first of all. What would it mean to abolish man? Lewis explains that. I will try to explain to you what he explains. The epigraph to the last chapter is from uh, John Bunyan from Pilgrim's Progress, one of the course most read books in all of human history. Lewis was a careful reader of it. He wrote his own sort of alternative version of it called Pilgrim's Regress. And uh, this quote from Pilgrim's Progress is spoken by Faithful, one of the companions of Christ, uh, Christian on the uh, progress of this pilgrim. It came burning hot into my mind. Whatever he said and however he flattered, when he got me home to his house, he would sell me for a slave. So what does that epigraph have to do with? Who would sell us for a slave? Who would flatter us and tempt us to his home and then sell us for a slave? Well, one place to look about that is in the companion novel to that hideous strength, to uh, The Abolition of Man, which is called That Hideous Strength. And it has a curious preface, which proves that the two things are related. I'm going to read from the preface. Uh, this is a tall story, in quotes, about devilry, writes Lewis, though it has behind it a serious point, in quotes, which I've tried to make in my abolition of man. In the story, they say in that hideous strength, the outer rim of this devilry, that is to say the workings of the devil, the outer rim of those workings have to be shown touching the life of some ordinary and respectable profession. I selected my own profession. There's a bunch of college professors in this novel, That Hideous Strength. Not, of course, because I think fellows of college is more likely to be thus corrupted than anyone else, but because my own is the only profession I know well enough to write about. Well, I want to just point out to you that I think that's not true. Uh, I think that the point of Abolition of Man, which we have covered so far, is that it is a certain kind of thinking among a certain kind of intellectual that lays the ground for this abolition of man. 
And I think in that hideous strength, I will claim it. You can read it for yourself and see if you think it's true, that just such academics are prevalent in that hideous strength. So I think Lewis was being nice to his own profession there, but I don't think he meant quite what he said. So I'll tell you about the novel. Uh, it might help you think about it when you read it. I've read it many times, by the way. It's one of my very favorite things to read. And I think it will repay any interest you take in it and also help to explain the abolition of man, which Lewis says is one of its purposes. Uh, there are three main scenes of action in this novel, That Hideous Strength. And the first is a little college in a place called Edgestow. It's called Bracton College. And uh, this is important for two reasons, this, this college. You can think of the college, because I just said there are three main places in it. And the college occupies a kind of middle battleground between the two others. And the reason it's a battleground is because of two things about it. One of them is it possesses a wood, a wooded area. And in the wood is an ancient well that our Arthurian legend, the legend of Arthur, King Arthur, of Britain in time immemorial, connects to Arthur and Merlin, this well. And uh, it will emerge in the novel, novel that, sure enough, Merlin is buried in this well, stored there by some supernatural force and able to come alive again. And, uh, and that's the first thing about this Bracton College and Edgestow that are very important. And the second thing about it is the faculty at Bracton College is divided, as uh, I dare say many faculties are today in many places, except where there is no division because the second part is the only part that prevails anymore. The old college is represented by the older fellows who think of college as a place to learn and behold, to learn about nature and God and uh, the permanent things, and the better to live one's life in, in observance of those permanent things, but above all, Really great just to think about those things and know those things. They're beautiful things to behold. And the other group is called the progressive element in the, in the college. And they think that's all bunkum. They think we have to get on with life. They think we shouldn't worry so much about old things or permanent things or standards outside ourselves. We know what to do. We just need to get on and do it. That's a proxy for very much of modern philosophy. So... Bracton College is split within itself, and it turns out to have this guy Merlin buried in it. Then that brings me to the other two places. Uh, one of them is uh, uh, located in a town called Belbury, and uh, the thing located there is called the National Institute for Coordinated Experiments, the NICE. It's kind of like Orwell, that, right? The Ministry of Truth and the Ministry of Love, those are actually ministries of lies and ministries of hate in Orwell. Well, this, uh, not, this nice is not very nice because it's run by very advanced academics of the progressive kind. And what, the, what has happened is Great Britain has uh, legally ceded to this institution the power to conduct experiments on the whole society. Indeed, it has its own police force. It emerges that it does experiments, not just on animals of a kind that Lewis objects to, but on people, too. And it can incarcerate them without charge. It murders people. And it has a grand plan, which is that it will create a race of immortal people who can live forever 
and who are of infinite power. And it's very much part of the self-understanding of these people at the Nice in Belbury that there'll just be a few of them and maybe ultimately only one of them that will possess this eternal life and these powers and the rest of them will be their slaves or as one of the characters in the novel comments at one point, or perhaps their food. Uh, you know how in the screw tape letters by Lewis, if you haven't read them, I suggest you do, hell is in there. And uh, they're always thinking about eating each other down there in hell. And hell kind of acts sort of like a bureaucracy. And uh, both the progressive element in the college at Bracton and in the upper leadership and the general run of the people at Belbury, they act like a bureaucracy. Everything is turf. Everything is indirect. Nothing is candid. Uh, everybody's underneath it all, out for themselves while making lots of speeches about the common good. Uh, Lewis has this, uh, this uh, thing about bureaucracy. It shows up <laughs> whenever there's devilry being described in C.S. Lewis. Belbury wants this wood. They want to buy it from the college, and they want to get Merlin. And they've got all the power of modern science at their disposal. And they think they've—come they, they, to find out that, by the way, the two senior leaders of Belbury are aware that they're being run by agents of some higher power. They call them macrobes, but it's actually the devil and his agents who are running them. They're actually agents of hell. And these macrobes have told them, go get that wood and get this guy Merlin because Merlin had magical powers. And if we can take these old magical powers and we can unite them to the powers of science, we can dominate everything. That's the plot. Uh, a third group is resisting them. And that group is located at a manor, a big house outside this town of Edstow called, Edstow called St. Anne's. And at St. Anne's is a man named Ransom, and he's the protagonist in all three of these things that are called the Space Trilogy. And mind you, uh, uh, the first of the, of the volumes in the three C.S. Lewis science fiction novels is uh, called Out of the Silent Pan Planet, and they go to Mars. And the second one is called Paralandra, and they go to Venus. And the third one's called That Hideous Strength, and it happens right here on Earth. So as science fiction, it's, uh, it's certainly not about space travel. Um, Ransom is the guy who goes to Mars, and then he goes to Paralandra, and now he's back here on Earth. And he is organizing a body that's kind of odd, and they're going to resist Belberry, and they think Merlin is very important. And so they want Merlin, too. And so Edstow, the Bracton College in the middle, and then this Belbury and St. Anne's, and they're both trying to get their hands on Merlin. Uh, that's an interesting thing that I'll explain for just a second, because there's a long passage in That Hideous Strength, in this last chapter called That Hideous Strength, that talks about magic and science. And Lewis claims that uh, the interest in magic is a way to exert power over nature, and the interest in the modern understanding of science and remember that modern understanding, Lewis has called, is, is, uh, is built upon the view that the only thing you can really understand is your own sentiments and feelings, and the purpose of science is no longer to behold things outside us. Now the purpose of science is to control, reshape, remake things outside us 
the things you can know are the things that you make. And so it becomes an effort not of beholding or of learning or of inspiration, but an effort of conquest. That's what Lewis thinks is happening to thought in the world and to science. And he says that this interest in magic and this interest in science grew up at the same time during the Renaissance, and both were efforts to conquer nature. You think of Goethe's Faust, right? What did Faust do except uh, make a pact with the devil that the devil could have his soul if he could have a lot of power? And uh, Lewis says that the, the magic and the science were competitors and that, uh, and that science proved to be the stronger. You can't actually do anything with magic. Uh, and so this idea, but they're, but they're coternimous or coincident in time when these two things grow up and become a leading intellectual interest of the world. And so Lewis has brought them both back in and made them important. It will emerge, by the way, that the people out at St. Anne's, they're actually following God. They're trying to be obedient to God, to the laws of nature and of nature's God, you might say. And they think Merlin is important, not because they think that man can have a magical power to control nature, or rather, they only think that could be held by men if God gave it to them. And so they think Merlin is important, and he does turn out to be important in wonderful ways. You'll love Merlin in this novel. If you've uh, Merlin and the bear and the hobo are my three favorite characters in the novel. So when you read the novel, learn all about Merlin and learn all about the bear, there's actually a conversation. This is one of the most powerful things I know like this. Uh, you know, the, the classical doctrine is only we human beings can talk, only we understand forms that can, that can use words as symbols of things. We have the magical ability to use common nouns. And only we have that, and, and C.S. Lewis very much thinks that that's so. He's, he's trained in that kind of thinking, as are many people here at Hillsdale College, as was Thomas Jefferson, for example. <laughs> so in this thing, there's this bear, and uh, Lewis reproduces a long conversation in the mind of the bear, where the bear decides to do something. Now, imagine how you would construct a conversation inside the mind of a character the mind having no power of words. And Lewis actually achieves that. It's really great. So find that and read it. You'll love it. And you'll love the hobo too. So there's this great contest that goes on, right? And just think of the terrible things that hinge on this context. Because what they're going to do is they're going to reduce everything in nature, including especially every human being in nature, to the iron and complete rule of a few people using the powers of modern science and maybe modern science and magic combined together. And that is what uh, C.S. Lewis conceived as a plot to explain what he's writing in Abolition of Man. In other words, he's saying that these ideas, and mind you, these ideas start with a sentence in a grammar book. Remember the little green book at the beginning. And the fellow says that uh, neither Coleridge was right that the waterfall was sublime nor the silly tourist who only called it pretty because both of them were actually describing the same thing, just their own emotions. 
there wasn't any way for them to have any real contact with something so magnificent as a great waterfall. Couldn't do that. So that's the claim. And from that sentence, C.S. Lewis makes an argument in Abolition of Man that what follows on that is a complete and universal despotism that is in fact and literally the abolition of man. So I'm just going to name now from here a couple of things that will help us put that argument together. How does he make that argument? Uh, it really just has two main parts, uh, in, in the, and they're both prevalent in Chapter 3, The Abolition of Man, in the book, The Abolition of Man. Uh, the first one is that the power of men over nature always and in every instance only means the power of some men over others. You've got to get that clear. That's what he says. Uh, I'm going to read you a little bit from a paragraph about this. He says, uh, let us uh, consider three typical examples of modern scientific products that make us stronger. The airplane, the wireless, and the contraceptive. The contraceptive, the last one is, you might say, a pregnant term. He, uh, he makes a lot out of that argument as he goes. But the point he makes is that uh, uh, we don't all own the airplane, and we don't all have the power to do whatever we want with the airplane. Some of us, some of us have that power, and the others can only have access to it if we pay the others money. Now, in a free market, you know, we argue here at Hillsdale College that the most liberal use of that and the fairest use of that will come from private property in the free market, but never mind. We don't go all get stronger because of the existence of airplanes, Lewis says. And if you think of the 9-11 attacks, for example, where they just took those big old peaceful airliners and they got them up in the air with all that uh, mass moving at all that uh, speed and ran them into a couple of buildings and killed 3,000 people. On that day, the people in the Twin Towers were not benefited by the existence of the airplane. What about contraceptives, he said. Uh, he says, you know, it's, contraceptives are obviously a good thing. And for that matter, what if we could use science, Lewis goes on to say, to design the children who come after us? Uh, contraceptives makes us more free to have sex without consequence, but it does something to the people who might have been born. Our freedom means their obliteration, in this case. Now, it's not so much the point, what you think about that, whether you agree with it or not, whether you think contraceptives are okay or not. Lewis's point is a logical point, and that is, if we take on this latitude, somebody not yet conceived pays a price, he says. But more than that, he says, what if we start... Uh, designing our children. Because you know right now, uh, I've said this before, uh, there is the ability to alter the germline DNA, the part that we all share, common code of the human, so that we could eliminate some birth defects. But if you could do that, then the minute you changed it, it would become ever after something we made. 
And of course, you could change it in more ways than just that. Maybe you could eventually figure out to how to change it so that uh, the offspring could run faster and you could win the Olympics. It's very profitable to win the Olympics. Nations get great glory out of it. You could see why there could be a national project, project to make such people. Or families, you know. Roger Federer has made a lot of money playing tennis. What if you could design yourself a kid that could really play tennis? Or another alternative. This is something that Winston Churchill and also Aldous Huxley in Brave New World uh, speculates about. What if you could make them so that they'd be really happy just to work for us? Now, by this genetic engineering, we would free ourselves of lots of problems that come from having kids that have problems. But we would assert control over those kids. Lewis even goes on to make the argument, you know, to the extent then that you did reshape all future generations, which is what would happen if you changed the germline DNA, then you could make yourselves like creators. And the earlier in the process you did that, he imagines that uh, human beings come at a certain time and eventually they're going to be extinct. And if you were to make that change early in the history of humanity, then your changes might last a very long time and you'd be an infinitely powerful, hugely powerful person. Whereas if you made the changes just in the next to the last generation, they'd only last for one generation. And the point being, that this power to reshape and alter humanity is a power that some parts of humanity will exercise over other parts. And he goes on to say this. He says, uh, you know, C.S. Lewis didn't have children except by marriage, but he understood the phenomenon and he understood by marriage because his wife Joy had a child. Uh, we all understand that if we have children. My wife and I have four children. And what do we think about those children? We made them, yeah, it's true. But we didn't design them, you know. God made them. And the features that they have are given by God or nature and also developed by them with our help over the course of their lives. And that toil of forming your character and learning is a common toil between parents and children, and it's common to every human being that he has to do that. And so what if all of a sudden we started thinking those kids as something we made, and we designed them, and the next time we could design a different one? Or maybe you never know. Maybe you could discard the kid and make another one if you didn't like this one. Lewis says that the principle that you can't have any real resonant contact with actual things outside us to, to, to measure their worth or their lack of worth. That once you start down that road, you will be looking at everything as nature, in nature for, as something for you to own and control and dominate. And there won't be much restraint left on how you go about doing that. Because there won't be any principle outside you to say, be kind to the young, weak ones. Love your kids. Take care of them, even when they're a pain, as they are often. See what a change that is? 
It's dangerous, he thought. Dangerous to go down that road. And that brings me to the second and the last point, and that is, uh, what do you do when you rip out of the human being its contact with things of real worth, independent, objective standing outside our wishes? What happens, right? Because here's what happens to us right now. To live a human life is like this. Uh, we feel pain and we enjoy pleasure. And pain and pleasure could tempt us to do things that are wicked, like hurt our children or steal from them or betray them or whatever, abandon our spouses. We do that a lot these days. When I say we, I don't mean me, thank God, nor she, thank God even more. So our human life exist in our coping with the same pains and pleasures and dangers and harms and enjoyments that animals have, and yet with a conscience about it. Something standing outside our ordinary activities that govern whether we've done the right thing or not. And Lewis makes the point that if you take that away and you focus all of our activities on just conquering nature however we want, What's going to be left inside us except just want, just our will, just the raw assertion of our will, which can only be defined by our appetite, by our desires. In other words, we'll be just like every wolf or every zebra or every dog. Do you see then what he means? He means that if you take nature as a standard, or God as a standard, outside the human soul, what you are left with is a beast, and you have abolished man. And every terror becomes possible then, because human beings can be very cruel rulers. And if the waterfall is not sublime, then the cruelty of the cruel tyrant is not really objectively cruel either, is it? That's his point. He ends the book this way. He says, uh, he calls for a restraint on this attitude that we should get whatever power we can get and we should use it however we should we can use it he calls for a restraint on the wish to make our own wills the measure of everything in the universe he says maybe i'm asking too much maybe that's impossible maybe in the nature of it, of things he says Analytical understanding must always be a, bas a basilisk. That means a serpent or a snake, right? Some echo of the Garden of Eden here. Which kills what it sees and only sees by killing. If the scientists themselves cannot arrest this process before it reaches the common reason and kills that too, and that's what would be the abolition of man, then something else would stop it. And what I'm afraid of 
is that I'm just going to be called this obscurantist, right, writes Lewis, who, who doesn't see that everything's gone pretty well now, up to now. Why don't we just keep going? It'll work out fine. We're more powerful. We live longer. We have much more. Whatever we have, right? Why don't we just let it run? At the time he's writing this book, he's already said, seen a new and terrible kind of war and a new and terrible kind of despotism, worse than anything and larger than anything and more intrusive and comprehensive than anything known in the ancient world. So you can't really say everything has gone great so far. What you can say is there's been a lot of blessings and there's been a lot of curses. And how do you know that they're going to remain in balance if they've been in balance so far? And Lewis says at the end, he says, there's just a logical reason for that. If you insist that when you look out in the, in the, in the universe, outside yourself, and you see something beautiful or something worthy, and you insist on seeing through it, always looking on toward something else, never trying to see it for its own sake, he says, never beholding the nature and its hierarchy and its structure. If you insist on doing that, he says, in the end you will live in a world where you've seen through everything and everything is invisible. That's how he closes the book. I'll just add one note to that because a contemporary of his, Winston Churchill, was also very worried about these things and about the despotism that comes from this process of the abolition of man. And Churchill imagines one time so it's good to end with Churchill, you know, because Churchill ends everything in hope. Always he does. So does Lewis, for that matter. Churchill imagines a world, he says, he writes this in 1931. He says, in which uh, we could live as long as we wanted and we could travel interplanetary as this hero Ransom did, all we want, and we could have pleasures wider and larger than human beings have ever known. And he says, live as long as we want, see. And remember about that, that that would sort of change our interest in the world, right, wouldn't it? Because we would never be able to look upon anybody as a successor to us, which is one of the reasons why we can love our children. It's one of the reasons why at the college I love the young ones a lot, right? Because one of these days some of them is going to take my place and do a better job than I did, and then they're going to say, God granting, that they were able to do that because of me. And I'll say, well, I'm not proud of that looking down from wherever I am, heaven, I hope. Churchill says about this, he says, what would really be the good of all that to a people who are living in a world like that? What would they know more than we know about the answers to the simple questions which man has asked since the earliest dawn of reason? Why are we here? What is the purpose of life? Whither are we going? No material progress can answer those questions. And it is, or he says, bring comfort to our souls. And it is this fact, he says, more wonderful than any that science in the modern sense can reveal, which gives the best hope that all will be well. You see, his point is simple, just like Lewis. We are not made to live in a world in which man has been abolished. We are men, are humans. We should continue to live and be what we are. Thank you.